and suggest several avenues that the state can use to transition folks to good jobs in the renewable energy industry and in remediation in the petrochemicals industry in Texas. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Marta Schaff, Director of Amnesty International's Program on Climate, Economic and Social Justice and Corporate Accountability, will link to Amnesty's new report, The Cost of Doing Business, the Petrochemical Industry's Toxic Pollution in the USA. Um, Amnesty's noted that the production of plastics by petrochemical plants is set to double by 2040, despite the fact that it poses environmental pollutant and health hazards, to say the least, particularly in communities of color. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a major gifts officer. Check it out at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. You are tuned into KBO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Do you love music but don't have the energy to find new stuff? Can't decide whether you want to hear indie rock or hip hop, electronic music or singer songwriters? Then tune into Another Late Night every first Saturday at 3 a.m. only on KBOO Community Radio or stream online at kboo.fm slash another late night where we've got it all Hey, KBOO listeners. KBOO cut through the clouds during our end-of-year campaign thanks to support from listeners like you. When we meet our campaign goals, we can continue to bring you colorful, radiant rays of radio. Thank you, and keep tuning in for unique music, cutting-edge news, and transformative public affairs on the airwaves. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News, Portland declares a 90-day state of emergency for fentanyl. The district attorney's office union endorses the DA's opponent, and a new report reveals the holes in Portland's homeless services for transgender and queer people. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. I'm Eric Leuschner. Officials declare a 90-day fentanyl state of emergency in Portland. It's a collaboration between the city, Multnomah County, and the state aimed at addressing the crisis around the synthetic opioid. The emergency plan is experimental. It establishes a command center in the city building where staff from all three governments will work. It's intended to be a sort of triage center where staff can connect people addicted to fentanyl to a variety of resources. People in the central city who come into contact with first responders and cops will be referred there. The emergency command center doesn't come with additional funding. Both the city and county are expected to move funds around to support the center. Detox and withdrawal care has been difficult to come by as the region's drug treatment resources have been overwhelmed by demand. 
Measure 110 created an influx of funding for organizations doing that work, but in a state where substance use disorder treatment ranks far below the national average, there's a lot of making up to do. The command center and 90-day emergency came from a recommendation by Governor Tina Kotek's Portland Task Force she convened with business and government leaders over the fall. There aren't any goals established by the program to measure success, but officials hope the structure can be sustained beyond 90 days. Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega Patterson said in a statement, quote, We are acting with shared leadership to take urgent action today to respond to the very human toll fentanyl takes in our community, including overdoses, fatalities, and day-to-day suffering, and the fear so many families are experiencing as a result, end quote. The command center will also expand Portland and Oregon State Police patrols of downtown and increase outreach and training on Narcan, the overdose reversal drug. Fentanyl overdose deaths increased over 500 percent between 2018 and 2022. New survey data from RTI International and Comagin Health found Oregon fentanyl users saw a median of eight overdoses in the last year. The survey also showed that people saw an enormous amount of non-fatal overdoses because of the use of naloxone or Narcan to reverse the overdose. 60% of Oregon fentanyl users surveyed had administered Naxalone on someone in the previous year. The Portland Committee on Community-Engaged Policing will meet virtually tomorrow, January 31st, from 6 o'clock to 8 p.m. The independent body will be taking public comments on the city auditor's report on Portland Street Response. Portland Street Response is a program under the fire department that responds to behavioral health calls with a social worker and a paramedic instead of police. Its success has been measured by Portland State University, but an auditor's report found street response to be under-supported by the fire bureau. Though city leaders have agreed on the success of the program, it still hasn't been made a 24-hour service. Over the summer, 11,000 community members signed a petition calling on city government to expand and support Portland Street Response. At the Portland Committee on Committee-Engaged Policing meeting, a representative from the city auditor's office will be there to take public comment. The meeting is on Zoom at 6 o'clock on Wednesday evening and more information about joining the meeting is online at portland.gov pccep. Pennsylvania Republicans revived the independent state legislature theory to challenge automatic voter registration. Democrats say recent arms sales to Israel lacked congressional approval and election year politics could kill a bipartisan border bill. With more on the story, it's Catherine Carley with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. I think at the end of the day, if you're going to go to court to try and aggressively disenfranchise people, then you're not on the side of democracy. You're not on the side of real freedom. Democratic Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says Republicans challenging the state's new automatic voter registration are working against democracy. Lawmakers contend the system the governor put in place never passed the legislature. Their lawsuit is in part based on the widely discredited independent legislature doctrine, which contends only those lawmakers can set election rules without judicial review. 
Senate Democrats want to know why the State Department approved two emergency weapon sales to Israel without congressional approval. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says there's no blank check to disregard civilian lives. U.S. military aid always includes conditions, and there is no exception even for our allies. In a letter to the State Department, the Democrats say the sales are highly unusual and need oversight. Meanwhile, the White House is mulling ways to respond to a deadly drone attack by Iranian-backed militias without sparking a wider conflict. President Joe Biden says he would be willing to close the U.S.-Mexico border if Congress would only send him a bill to sign. A bipartisan group of lawmakers have been working on an immigration policy deal, but former President Donald Trump is urging his allies to reject it. Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah calls that appalling. The idea that, that someone running for president would say, please hurt the country so I can blame my opponent and help my politics is a, uh, a shocking uh, development. Supporters of the bill say it aims to get to zero illegal crossings a day, strictly limits amnesty, and increases detention beds to quickly detain and deport migrants. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says it's the best they can get and also unlocks aid to Ukraine. I don't mind helping our allies stand up to the bad guys, but we've got to fix our own backyard here. No money for anybody until we secure our border. The Wisconsin Supreme Court wants the state's elections board to answer Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips' claim he's being barred from the state's primary. The Minnesota congressman accuses the state's Democratic Party of forcing him to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to gather signatures to get on the ballot. He says far-right mega-Republicans are not the only ones undermining democracy. Most Democrats want a different nominee. 83% of young ones want someone different. Clearly, there's more of an appetite for an unnamed generic Democrat than the existing one. And the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments regarding Mifepristone, the commonly used abortion pill, in late March. The case challenging access to the drug will mark the court's first return to the abortion issue since it overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The Multnomah County Prosecuting Attorneys Association endorsed Prosecutor Nathan Vasquez for District Attorney in the upcoming May election. Vasquez is a longtime prosecutor in the District Attorney's Office who is trying to defeat his boss, current DA Mike Schmidt. This is the second time the Prosecuting Attorneys Association has endorsed Mike Schmidt's rival in an election. Schmidt campaigned and won his 2020 election based on a platform of police reform and for not prosecuting low-level crimes. Vasquez says he wants to instead amp up prosecution of low-level crimes and empower police in general. Downtown Portland businesses have bankrolled Vasquez's campaign so far, donating over $270,000 to his campaign. Mike Schmidt has raised roughly $150,000. Schmidt's campaign spokesman, Andrew Rogers responded to the endorsement by listing Schmidt's endorsers, including former Governor Kate Brown and Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega Pedersen. A new report reveals that despite Portland's queer-friendly reputation, there are serious gaps in the city's homelessness services for this population. The report was commissioned by the Joint Office of Homeless Services and completed by a coalition of local nonprofits called the LGBTQAI2S Plus Housing Collaborative. They found that data on sexual orientation is not collected as a part of houselessness data. That, despite the fact that national data suggests that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer people are more than twice as likely to experience homelessness when compared to straight people. 
They also found that there aren't any LGBTQ-specific emergency shelters in the Portland area. Most shelters are gendered, either being for men or women, which can result in discrimination and lack of safety for trans and non-binary people. The report also found there aren't enough culturally specific services for the queer population. The Joint Office only funds one queer-specific organization to provide housing case management. The report makes recommendations as well, calling on lawmakers to expand capacity among queer service providers and hold mainstream providers accountable for affirming services too. A bipartisan group in Arizona is making the case that the state should open up their primaries. In most states, primaries are closed, meaning only voters who are members of the party can vote in the primary. An open primary would allow any voter to participate in a primary election. Proponents say it would help boost voter turnout, give voters more say in who they support, and potentially incentivize candidates to be more moderate. Alex Gonzalez reports from Phoenix. A bipartisan Arizona group that's pushing for open primaries in the state says it isn't surprised by the relatively low voter turnout in recent primary elections. As in Iowa, Arizona requires voters to be affiliated with a major political party to be able to participate in primary elections. Former Phoenix mayor and member of the Make Elections Fair Arizona Executive Committee, Paul Johnson, says from his experience, those who show up in what he calls low turnout primaries tend to be the most extremist voters. He says that leads to more extreme candidates winning, but it also paints a skewed picture of how the public views issues. There's a great level of surprise by a great many people who just can't believe that we're continuing on with an outcome where the majority of us somewhere near the general election are going to have to pick between what most people see as being the lesser of the best options. Johnson says he considers the current system to be discriminatory toward independent and unaffiliated voters. He argues open primaries would ease polarization. Arizona allows unaffiliated voters to participate in any party primary they choose, but does not allow voters who are registered with one party to vote in another's. Supporters of closed primaries argue they're essential for preserving party ideals and influence. Sarah Smallhouse is also with Make Elections Fair Arizona. She says Arizona's independent and unaffiliated voters have to take extra steps to be able to participate in primary elections and adds that many times they don't. Smallhouse says that leads to a false sense of representation. In the sliver of primary voters that's making all these important decisions, you don't actually have representation from the largest group of registered voters in the state. That, that's a problem. The group wants to note that both the Republican and Democratic parties are necessary, but adds that open primaries would draw the best out of both of them, as they argue it would facilitate a constructive and holistic political landscape. The initiative does not stop parties from endorsing a candidate, but they would no longer be guaranteed a place on the general election ballot. The group is still collecting the needed signatures by this June to get the measure on the November 2024 ballot. For Arizona News Connection, I'm Alex Gonzalez. Artificial intelligence could be used to meddle in the 2024 election. It could also lead to voters trusting real information less. Eric Tegadoff has more. The rise of artificial intelligence is raising alarm bells for election officials across the country. Before the New Hampshire primary, a robocall imitating President Joe Biden called voters and told them not to vote. It's seen as a potential preview of what voters could be in for as the 2024 general election approaches. Rachel Ori is the senior associate director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Elections Project. She says while incidences like the one in New Hampshire might be isolated, AI could have other consequences. Our bigger concern is 
what's known as a liar's dividend, that even when there are instances of generative AI being used to target voters with false information, they feed into this bigger risk that the presence of false information makes voters trust any information less. Ori says the past few years have seen a near-constant assault on accurate voting information, which has made it challenging for good information to reach voters. Oregon's Republican and Democratic primary elections are on May 21st. Ori says AI could supercharge the misinformation campaigns that have existed for years. However, election officials across the country have a leg up going into the 2024 vote. Election officials and voting advocates around the country are sort of well prepared to mitigate and respond to increases in misinformation because they spent the last couple of years flexing that muscle and learning how to respond to misinformation and election denial campaigns. Ori says election officials should have a plan ready to respond to AI misinformation campaigns, which might include contacting affected voters. She says there likely aren't any regulatory options available at the moment to stop these operations. Technology is maybe growing faster than the regulatory tools we have available. So at present, it seems difficult to find a policy that the government could adopt and make these robocalls impossible. Ori says another concern is targeted campaigns that use a voter's personal information to persuade them not to vote, although there aren't any documented instances of this happening yet. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. For Oregon News Service, I'm Eric Tegadov. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for KBOO News In-Depth. At 6 o'clock, it's This Way Out. Then at 7, Hard Knock Radio. Tonight's weather will be cloudy, with some potential for showers overnight and an overnight low of 57. Tomorrow's weather will be rainy with a high of 54. Today in history, in 1925, Early internet pioneer and inventor of the computer mouse, Douglas Engelbert, was born in Portland. The quote of the day is from President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who said, quote, The moral consciousness of the world must recognize the importance of removing injustices and well-founded grievances, but at the same time it must be aroused to the cardinal necessity of honoring sanctity of treaties, of respecting the rights and liberties of others, and putting an end to acts of international aggression. End quote. A Navajo Nation Council delegate steps down to take up a state role in New Mexico. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A Navajo Council delegate has stepped down from his seat to take up a new position with the state of New Mexico as Deputy Secretary of Indian Affairs. Clark Adamitis has more. Seth Damon bid farewell to the Navajo Nation Council. My family and I share deep appreciation uh, for the communities I had the privilege of representing over the years. And thank you for standing with me during positive and very oftentimes difficult times. Damon is accepting a new position in New Mexico's Department of Indian Affairs, a department that recently replaced a controversial cabinet secretary and that has been criticized for its response in the missing and murdered indigenous relatives crisis. Eugenia Charles Newton is a Navajo Nation council member who co-sponsored a number of bills with Seth Damon. 
Charles Newton spoke to counsel on Seth Damon's last day. Because we do really give millions of dollars back to the state of New Mexico who are trying to help us um, to uh, with water projects, with chapter projects, with road projects. And because of the miscommunication that happens between the state government and the Navajo Nation, I think that Speaker Damon is a perfect um, fit to try to fix that issue. The Speaker of the Navajo Nation Council says that an interim council member will be appointed to fill Damon's vacant seat. A special election will be held to permanently fill the seat. I'm Clark Adamitis. The Shunak Tribe of Kodiak, Alaska, in collaboration with the Alutic Museum, have released a textbook to help revitalize an endangered Alaska native language. KMXT's Davis Hovey reports. A new Aleutic language textbook released last month focuses on the Koniak dialect, although it's open to anyone who wants to learn Aleutic. Derek Chaya works at the Aleutic Museum and is one of the co-authors. He says many Aleutic speakers were consulted to create this textbook. Whenever we're doing any language, like producing any language materials, uh, we work as much as we can with language speakers who live here in Kodiak. Uh, Over the past few years, that's gotten harder and harder as, as speakers have passed on. Chaya started his language journey with nearly no knowledge of Alutic, having rarely heard it spoken when he was growing up. Now he is an advanced speaker who still considers himself a language learner. He says this textbook, in conjunction with all the other online language resources, can help revitalize the endangered Alaska native language. But there are still challenges that exist for a beginner to become fluent in Alutic. I think the hardest uh, part of learning the language is like finding time to like use it with somebody because um, language learning for a lot of people is quite a personal journey and not everybody has the opportunity to have other people around them who are also learning at the same time or at the same rate. With elders and fluent Alutic speakers dying off, there is a need for more speaker teachers to help the next generation achieve proficiency in their second language. That's where Peggy Azuyak comes in. She's teaching Alutic language classes to young adults at the Kodiak College under the University of Alaska Anchorage. I'm using it right now in our Alutic 102 class. This is the first semester I'm, I'm able to use it with students. The new Alutic language textbook features 15 chapters, including sections on numbers and math, and is targeted towards high school and college-age students. Several high school students have been um, interested in going through either the Kodiak High School or the Kodiak College courses and are involved with teaching the language in their home communities. Anyone who wants to learn to speak Alutic can access the Alutic Language textbook online for free at aluticlanguage.org. Reporting in Kodiak, I'm Davis Hovey. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Of the approximately 330 million people in the United States, 44 million are struggling with hunger, with a disproportionate number living in rural communities. To address the issue, a nationwide nonprofit network is urging lawmakers to strengthen emergency food assistance within the Farm Bill now stalled in Congress. Roz Brown reports from New Mexico. Some 44 million Americans are struggling with hunger, including a quarter million in New Mexico, and a nationwide food bank network wants Congress to help. Feeding America's Vince Hall says money for the emergency food assistance program in the Farm Bill should be doubled from $450 million to $900 million. Hall says it's likely many of us are in relationships with people struggling with hunger, whether we know it or not. 63% of the counties in the United States are rural, but 87% of counties that are experiencing the highest rates of food insecurity are rural. So the problem is definitely more severe. 
He says the demand for food is higher now than it was at the peak of the pandemic and shows no sign of abating, while the cost of fuel, labor, and refrigeration for food banks has risen. After failing to reach consensus last year, Congress punted reauthorization of the Farm Bill to 2024, extending the current bill through the end of September. Hall notes that 30 percent of meals distributed by New Mexico's Roadrunner Food Bank come through the Emergency Food Assistance Program, making its role critical in addressing the state's food insecurity. Almost 12 percent of households are struggling with food insecurity, and in New Mexico, 20 percent, literally one in five of the children in New Mexico are struggling with food insecurity on a regular basis. He says hunger is disproportionate in rural communities because wages are generally lower, grocery stores are farther away, and reliable transportation can be a challenge. Feeding America is a nationwide network of more than 200 food banks. Hall worries that without help from lawmakers, food banks will run out of food and possibly be forced to close permanently. This is Roz Brown, New Mexico News Connection. The National Marine Fisheries Service has reopened 4,500 square miles of fishing grounds off the Southern California coast for bottom fish species. They've simultaneously closed off eight areas comprising 428 square miles to protect the coral reef. Suzanne Potter has more. Good news for fishing crews and marine conservationists. Large fishing grounds are reopening, while other areas receive new protections. Some 4,500 miles of ocean fishing grounds off Southern California are now open to recreational and commercial fishing for bottom-dwelling species, and 428 miles of coral and sponge habitat are closed. Jeff Shester with the nonprofit Oceana says his organization has spent years mapping the seafloor, discovering coral beds he says are right out of a Dr. Seuss book. These areas have some of the richest gardens of underwater deep sea corals and sponges anywhere. And so we wanted to make sure that these areas had special protection so that no bottom contact fishing can damage some of these really sensitive redwoods of the deep sea. The fishing grounds in question had been closed for 20 years to protect a species known as the cow cod rockfish, which has recovered from previous overfishing. The entire area is still closed to bottom trawling, but the hook and line method and ground fish bottom long lines and traps are now permitted. The areas now reopening include prime fishing grounds off of San Diego. The eight areas to be newly protected are near the Channel Islands and far offshore seamounts 100 miles from the coast. Shester says Oceana collaborated with commercial fishing groups and the State Department of Fish and Wildlife to determine the areas most worthy of extra protection. They went into place without opposition because it was done in a thoughtful way where there was compromises made and we brought data and science forward and it's an example of how fishing and conservation groups can work together to support the shared goals of healthy fishing as well as protecting seafloor habitats. Deep sea corals and sponges are a crucial part of the marine ecosystem, sheltering many species from predators and serving as feeding areas and nurseries. They are among the most long-lived creatures in the ocean. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. A smartphone app can help people track their climate goals. The Get Green app lets you earn points and compete with others for the highest score. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Many people and organizations want to help reduce global warming, but it can be hard to know where to start or how to track the progress they're making. 
Mark Radinich is with Emerald Technology Group. The company makes a smartphone app called Get Green to help solve that problem. Get Green is an app that's freely available. It educates and engages people on sustainable decisions that they can make in their daily life. The app recommends ways to limit or reduce carbon pollution, like walking to work or planting trees. By completing different challenges, people can earn points, which helps them build new habits and even compete with others for a high score. We like to say it's fun to use. Companies, organizations, and local governments that have set climate goals can also use Get Green to help their communities achieve those goals. For example, a beverage company called Talking Rain recently got more than 100 of their employees to collectively log more than 3,000 climate-friendly actions in one month. Radinich says this kind of technology can help organizations track their progress on sustainability. The idea that we can all do something is the strength of the app. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Chris Gao and Michelle Coppola. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Antonia Gonzalez, Eric Tegadoff, Roz Brown, Catherine Carley, Alex Gonzalez, and Dr. Anthony Lysowitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Eric Leuschner. All of our KBOO programs, including the Evening News, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News In-Depth. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> It's a new year, and with that, we are now in the official mist of movie awards season. Now, this is not something I really follow closely, but I have been thinking a lot lately about the dominant narratives that surround us and that we're all basically steeped in. And I'm thinking about how popular culture, like films, can get under our skin and perpetuate certain ideas about the world, like what progress means and what version of history gets to be told. So I wanted to revisit an episode that we first aired last September, and it starts off with one film that's been getting a lot of buzz. And with that, I hope you enjoyed the show from our archives. I'm standing inside the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, which is this beautiful historic cinema. There's a big marquee outside, the kind where you change the letters by hand. And I'm here to see Hi, can I get one for Oppenheimer, please? Yeah, sure. Okay, theater two. That's me. 
The film follows J. Robert Oppenheimer during his time with the Manhattan Project, the United States military program to build an atomic bomb during World War II. We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. He led the secretive Project Y at Los Alamos, New Mexico. That's where preeminent scientists and their families lived and worked while developing the world's first nuclear weapons. But the film left out a lot.